0: Peter Williams from 1 o'clock on RCR, Reality Check Radio. It is a Friday afternoon on Reality Check Radio and an absolute pleasure now to welcome my next guest. He is Bruce Powell, who is, I suspect, an otherwise uh, normal gentleman, except that he is... 105 years old. He might be now the oldest man, the oldest living man in New Zealand. I don't know whether that's true or not. But, Bruce, welcome to Reality Check Radio. And by the sounds of things, you are in very rude health at your rather, with all due respect, your rather advanced age.
1: Well, I'm in good health. I don't know about rude health. I'm not sure about that.
0: (laughs) So you uh, do, do you know whether in fact <laughs> no no I'm
1: fine I'm I'm in good order yes
0: very good do yeah. you know in fact whether you're the you are the oldest man in New Zealand
1: well uh, I, I, when you you've got to qualify this uh, am I the oldest person with some marbles and driving a car and looking after yourself sort of thing I'm sure there's older people in care suites and. Things like that have been looked after, but i'm not so sure whether i mean well i i 've got my fingers inverted for normal i I consider i'm sort of fairly normal in that i'm capable of doing everything to look after myself, living in a an um, retirement village of individual uh, care you know looking after myself and cooking and driving and all that sort of thing. So I, if that is bracketed in, I'm probably right up there with the oldest, yes.
0: Mm. You say you're driving. How often do you have to take a take a test to maintain your licence?
1: Uh, every other year. I'm, I'm OK till May next year. My doctors kindly kindly um, tested me and all the rest of it last year and, and considered I passed all the tests, so that was all right.
0: And how far do you yeah. drive when you do get behind the wheel? Well, do you go very far? Uh,
1: to, to be honest, I'm cautious about this because I know if I have an accident, they'll say, why are you allowing an old person like that to be driving? So I'm very cautious. I stick to the routes I know. So I would not drive over town. I drive around the shore quite happily. Uh, driving no problem at all. But if you're not navigating strange areas, you need to be uh, your wits about you to drive and uh, navigate. And uh, I don't think it's prudent of me to step outside the well-known areas.
0: Mm. So yeah. do you go to places like the supermarket? I mean, do you still do your own shopping? Oh, I go to
1: the supermarket to Susan's. I go to Takapuna. I might go to the beach. Somebody go with Susan places and just drive around on the shore. But I don't go with town any longer, no. Because I don't know all the markings are altered and you get in the wrong lane and all this sort of nonsense. So uh, although I claim to be normal, I'm sure that my... Mental alertness probably isn't the same I was when I was about uh, 50 or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. All right, Bruce, let's find right. out
0: a little, about your, a little about your 105 years on this planet. Right. I, I detect an English accent there. So you were, you were born in the old country, I take it, were you?
1: I was born in Middlesbrough in Yorkshire, which is a steel town. And uh, my father was a steelworks manager there. Uh, Middlesbrough used to be a quiet little village. It was called Middlesbrough because it was the middle walk between Whitby and York that the monks used to walk in. They called it Middlesbrough, hence the middle bit. Um, Anyway, in eighteen forty paralleling New Zealand, they discovered iron ore in the Cleveland hills, and there was a deep water port quite close by so uh, the steelwork industry developed several steel plants grew around the town and um, it, it grew like topsy, just like New Zealand did it was and in fact, a lot of Irish Labourers came and set up the steelworks, which was interesting. Mm. Uh, yes, yeah, so Dad was a coke oven manager. Um, Middlesbrough, although uh, sounding industrial, uh, has, uh, has got a beautiful coastline uh, and also beautiful hinterland. The the Wensleydales and all the rest of it, steeped in history and um, uh, a great area to live in, actually. But if you get out of the slums of the town, but the slums are being cleared up a bit now. Anyway, is that enough about the <laughs> beginnings? Indeed, I was going to
0: going to say you were born in the year that uh, the First World War ended. Have you, well, been, have you been back to uh, Middlesbrough the, much? Uh, say again? Have you been back to Middlesbrough much in the time since you left?
1: I used to in the early days, but most of my family have died off now. My brother and sister, my sister and two brothers have died and um, parents, of course, long gone. Uh, so there's um, cousins and all that sort of gone. So we're just into the second generation. Uh, my daughter, Susan, is going to do a bit of a tour of England. She's going to a wedding there in September and doing a tour of rallies in England. So in Scotland, so, um, but uh, I I used to go back, because my son is living in Wales, so I I used to go back fairly frequently, certainly when my family were alive, Mm. Um, but I haven't been back for a few years now, so no, no real desire to go traveling back anyway. So did it's you a horrible journey?
0: Did you move uh, further south then from from Yorkshire down down into the Midlands or even yeah, further well, south uh, than that?
1: Um, first of all, yeah. Um, well, well, uh, well, I was born in nineteen eighteen May, and the war went on, of course, till November. And the date of my birth, the Germans made a great big push to try and win the war before the Americans came in. And they and nearly got to Paris, but the new divisions came in and stopped them. And after that, the Germans were never quite the same. So now, having got that off my chest, uh, we move into the pre-war years of depressions and disarmament, and then we get to the stage of Adolf Hitler, who's you know running rampant in, in, in Europe. And uh, Winston Churchill, of course, is our great saviour. He was pushing them to rearm and all the rest of it. And in 1937, with with these war clouds gathering, I saw a propaganda film uh, of airplanes coming over and bombing this city. And it said, for the want of the aircraft, uh, for anti-aircraft units, the um, city was bombed. Young men go and join the anti-aircraft units. So I went up the recruiting office the next day with a fate of patriotism. And I got there, and the guy said, oh, we don't have any of those sort of things here. He said, uh, you could join a coastal defense unit. They've got guns. I said, well, I don't know whether they'd shoot down airplanes, but perhaps. So I joined this coastal defense unit. And uh, in the Munich crisis, we were called up to, to defend the River Tees. Um, and then he uh, came back, peace in our town, and I was demobbed. Oh, by the way, I'd, I'd uh, left school by this time, and uh, I was an apprentice electrician. Um, I wasn't very clever at school because I was left-handed and uh, had poor eyesight. And... Uh, in their wisdom, they used to put the inkwells on the right-hand side of the desk, and they gave you steel-nib pens. So you put dip it, your pen in the ink and, and start writing across, and drop ink on the uh, paper as you went by, and then scruffed it with your hand on the way back, and you get belted for untidy work. Um, those were the days of canes and straps and all the rest of it. Um Anyway, when the war got a bit nearer, I went and joined the regular army. And uh, I, I, when the uh, war started, we, we all the reservists were called up. We used to pilot them around the schools and all the rest of it. And I think about seven or eight days after the war started, I was posted to a cavalry unit that had just been mechanised. They had these Mark Six five-ton tanks and and um, Bren gun carriers. And we uh, went to France about uh, the 15th. We went to Bristol. And uh, by the way, they asked me, could you drive a tank? Because we haven't got any drivers. So they're all ex-horsemen. And I said, well, I've never driven a tank, but uh, I don't mind a motorbike or a car. I've got a license or a truck. I'll drive that. So they gave me a motorbike and my job was when I was going from Colchester, all the was to uh, help any vehicle that had lost its tracks. Not that I knew the first thing about tanks, <laughs> 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 but I started to learn a bit quickly. Yes. So then we went over to France, and uh, I was in France for the whole of the Phony War, and then just before the invasion, we were stationed at Vimy Ridge, and we moved to the Belgium frontier about to move and I went down with meningitis
0: and finished
1: up in a hospital in Dieppe and thanks to the and Baker 693 which was the first I understand of the antibiotics was uh, was, it, it was developed in 1938 and made available to the armed forces and the nursing sister there said to us you're the luckiest guys in the world, you've got this without it. You'd all been dead. So we got the first M&B 693 tablets, which, interestingly, uh, at the Tehran conference, Churchill got pneumonia, and he was treated with M&B 693. Anyway, don't let me talk too much. You well, no, uh, I was going to questions.
0: say, because of the meningitis, Bruce, did you actually see action? Did you, did you well, get, get put no, that tank the uh, up to the front?
1: Right. Okay. Well, because of the meningitis, although the regiment went up through Belgium and uh, did a tremendous job uh, and suffered casualties, I was put in a hospital ship because they, they emptied the hospital ship uh, hospital to bring in the casualties, and we were shipped back to the UK. So I missed Dunkirk by a whisper. <laughs>
0: you were back so, there beforehand so was, and, and did you go back again after that i mean were you part of uh, the allied invasion at normandy or anything like no, that did no, you recover no, no. by then
1: well what happened then uh, um, i was I, I was sent to recuperate to a, an ordnance depot uh, where i was doing electrical work there um, and then they posted me to to forest in south in, in wales um, south wales uh, near Pontypridd, uh, which is now the University of the University of Glamorganshire, I believe. Um, so I went to this, uh, what was now radar. It was called gun laying equipment. It was top secret, and I learned to um, maintain this equipment. And um, then I came out and was posted to Hull during the, the air raids on Hull. We were servicing. Uh, um, radar we'll call them radar but we used to call them GL Mark 2 but uh, that was by the way um, and also I went around with a, a barrage balloon testing the, the elevation and bearing of sights uh, having done that they posted me to a, a regiment uh, going overseas uh, to North Africa well I didn't know it was North Africa but it was with the First Army um, which was Churchill's sort of intervention because we, there, there was a lot of pressure to do the second front, but Churchill knew we weren't ready for it, so he opted to get get another army in, in North Africa to get Rommel in a pincer, you know, the 8th Army coming down through, through Algiers and um, Tunisia, um, uh, and the 1st Army going up uh, to meet them there. Um, so... Anyway, I was put on embarkation leave and I was in a village in Hesketh Bank in Lancashire, and my wife and my girlfriend or my sweetheart lived in a village called Repton, which uh, was quite well famous for its school there uh, college. Um, anyway, I went to the phone put Tump's in the slot, as you did those days, and told them I was on leave. I urgently needed to get hold of my sweetheart to propose marriage. So she phoned the phone box in there, and it rang and rang and rang, and eventually some guy answered, and I said, you know Dorothy Ellard? He said, oh, yeah, I know. Well, I said, would you mind going and get her? So about half an hour later, she arrived having just washed her hair, But anyway, the phone went dead, and then the phone came back and said, sorry, we've lost the connection because the uh, connection, the uh, exchange has been bombed, but we're rerouting you through Scotland. (laughs) Anyway, by the time, um, I've still only got Tufts in the slot, by the way. (laughs) Uh, This would never happen in today's world. Uh, Anyway, by this time, most of the uh, telly reporters were on the uh, um, operators were on the line, and I said to Dorothy, uh, well, she said, oh, what do you want? You know, I'm just washing my hair, She's, uh, and it's a cold winter's night. I said, well, I've got this, I'm on draft in a couple of weeks, so I've got embarkationally. will you marry me? Uh, she said, oh, I'm not sure about that. And the operator said, go on, for God's sake, get him married. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, she said, okay, then.
0: Oh, very good. So, a very, a very uh, public proposal, was it then? A very public a very, proposal. A
1: very public proposal, I tell <laughs> you. After the country, I, I didn't have the goal to press the button. I don't suppose you remember the telephone boxes where you could press button B and get your tuppence back.
0: Yes, I do remember those. We had them in New Zealand ever <laughs> so briefly. I didn't briefly. have the goal
1: yeah. to get my tuppence back. <laughs>
0: How long, how long did the Tuppence last? Because the last time I used a phone box in the UK, you were putting 20p pieces in and they kept on running out and they would beep every now and then and you had to load the phone again. So well, how, only long where did, how long did lasts. Tuppence go?
1: Uh, well, normally, I think about three minutes, but I, I was on there for an hour, but they were very keen to keep me on.
0: They <laughs> knew there was some big news coming. <laughs> so where
1: did you get married so, to?
0: Where did you get married to Dorothy? So
1: anyway, I got embarkation leave for a few days. Um, we got married in the church there, very old St. Winston Church, what goes back to the uh, um, historic times anyway. Um and then I was shipped off to North Africa. with. But fortunately, uh, I should have gone on um, uh, the, the ship that I would have gone on. Half the regiment went on it, and it got torpedoed off Oran. Or um, but, but there wasn't enough transport to take us, so I had to wait another couple of weeks to get on the Monarch of Bermuda. But we got there all right, but... So the, the angel was on my shoulder. I missed the torpedoing. Indeed. Just so by.
0: how long did you see action in North Africa for? Uh,
1: for three years. Well, North Africa and Italy. Right. So anyway, we went, we went up uh, pretty well up north um, to meet the 8th Army. We we're, were protecting the ports. And uh, we had one or two successes. But when in uh, Algiers, we shot down a plane uh they they, um, they machine gunned our site, and i I dived into the bushes <laughs> just to miss, and hit my knee and I had a bad knee forever on, but I never claimed anything right? <laughs> no. Um so then we moved up there and then uh, the Germans surrendered, and after a few weeks, we were shipped. Uh, when when the invasion of Italy went on, we were shipped up to Italy and moved up the Adriatic uh, past Barry. We got to know the Kiwi troops who were stationed in Barry there. They had the hospital in Barry. Um, so I got to know quite a few Kiwi lads. And we finished up at Ancona, um, had a few shoots, but it was fairly quiet because... Germany was so now involved with its air force in uh, Russia, it didn't have much to spare. And by this time, they'd built up. The Americans have built up a massive uh, bombing bombing load at uh, bombing planes um, in Italy. So, um, um, so, so, Bruce, uh, when you
0: anyway, when you look back on your World War Two experiences, would you regard it as? An influential time? Was it uh, an enjoyable time because you got to be with so many well, other young uh, men uh, of the uh, era?
1: Well, I was for, for, I mean, for the first eight months in, in uh, France, that was called the Phony War. And, and we had a, the exchange rate was incredible. We had 300 francs to the pound. So uh, we, we lived in cafes and all the rest of it. We lived like. Kings in there. The, the the French army were paid in I don't know uh, a franc a day or something like this. We, we lived like lords in there, and and, and we the uh, Montgomery was our divisional leader, um, well major general, um, and we used to do manoeuvres all across the. The frontier, we weren't allowed into Belgium because the Leopold wouldn't let us in. He thought that would, uh, you know, uh, un- upset the Germans. So we weren't allowed into Belgium. So we just had to stooge backwards, up and forwards. In the Lille, north part of Calais, I think they called it. And it was at Vimy Ridge where, you know, you remember what how serious that was in the First World War and the Canadians took it. Vimy Ridge was famous for the First World War. And they they had all still had the trenches there that uh, they'd put in concrete. Anyway, it was there that uh, just before we went into action, that I went down with meningitis. Right. And I say I was saved the horrors of the war. Um, so that was that was a great eight months. So mm, what about I, the African
0: campaign the, and Italian now, campaign though?
1: Well, uh, uh, in the beginning, it it was uh, very active. And then as we moved along. Um, the, the Germans got a hammering and, and uh, they, they ruined a lot of their planes and, uh, and they were so involved in Russia that we had less and less action and more and more swimming fun. So, so, but the, the other thing uh, I have to say, you know, Napoleon says the army marches on its stomach. Well, in a mechanized age, a substantial amount of your troops are um, providing supplies for the me- mechanized machinery and repairing them and all the rest of it. Uh, now, New Zealand had all these infantry battalions, as you well know, um, but to 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 keep them in action, for every soldier on the front line, you have to have at least three um, r- supplying. Yeah, you know, the food, the petrol, the laundry, um, maps, and uh, and repairing and manufacturing and all sorts of things. So, although we w- we were right up there, we we as we went forward, we went through burning villages and burnt-out tanks and all the rest of it. But I, although I had a bayonet, <laughs> I was never called upon to use it. Fortunately,
0: right. So during yeah, during but- during the Second World War, then you never fired a shot in anger, and and uh, never. No, I ne- didn't. No. Ne- never had your tank uh, fire uh, from its gun either.
1: No, no. Well, I I used to I, I, see. I didn't go up when when the balloon went up. I didn't go up with them. If I had. Uh, part of the exercise we had to go backwards and forwards on motorbikes taking battery one of the worst things about the um, tanks is that the um, the radio was connected to the same battery that started the engine and when the tanks went used to bury down and act as sort of a a fortress uh, they didn't run the engines so the battery went flat They, they couldn't use the radio and they couldn't start the engine So uh, the lads had to take out new batteries... And, and to the firing line, you know. So, so it wasn't all gravy, you know. Indeed. Uh, but anyway, I missed that exercise.
0: Well, on so reflection, was, maybe not a bad idea. So, tell us about. I think it was a good idea. <laughs> tell us about. <laughs> tell us about your life then after you were. What do they call it? Demobbed after you came out of the army. So that well, would have been well, 1945. Yeah,
1: after I was demobbed, well, one of the great things, of course, we travelled back from tra- Spain. They demobbed the anti-aircraft units, and I went. To a, I went to a base camp, which was manned by uh, surrender personnel from the Austrian Alpine Division, and these guys were their mechanics. Uh, they'd surrendered; they weren't prison of They were called surrender people, surrender personnel, and a lot of them were in, had their families in the Soviet zone and they didn't, they didn't really want to be sent home. They wanted to stay there, um, until things settled down. So they were really great guys. They, uh, they used to sing to us and all the rest of it. Anyway, and we we were repairing all this equipment that came in from the disbanding troops. So when we got, to, got to Aldershot, we went through Aldershot and, um, we were given, uh, take, took off our uniforms, and we put on a very Ill, ill-fitting suit, a trilby hat and a raincoat, and a box of underwear and all the rest of it. And then we came out, all these guys looking ill-fitted, got on a train to London, and then we disappeared. And when I arrived, my wife by this time had hired a flat for us. She'd been collecting furniture. And uh, when I knocked at the door, she opened it, she got the shock of her life. She said, well, the first time, never seen me in civvies, but uh, once she looked at this awful suit, first thing we're doing tomorrow, we're going to town to get you a new suit.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so did you did you looked, set, settle in London after the war then?
1: Uh, well, we, we decided my family lived up north and her family lived up in Derbyshire. Uh, so we said, Well, we, we can do anything. Where do you want to go? She said, I want to go and live in London. So we uh, hired a, a furniture van, and we put our furniture in the back, sat in the back, and went up and lived with uh, this, not possible these days, but uh, her aunt had a, a flat there with two daughters. The two daughters moved out of the room, and we moved into their room, and all our furniture stored there in Hammersmith. And I got a job with the um, as um, a what do a, what um, call laboratory mechanic, with the Admiralty Engineering Laboratory close to. Oh, I'll tell you. When you went there, there used to be a field with a few caravans alongside it, and every now and again a plane used to land. Do you know they call that field? No. Heathrow.
0: There you go. <laughs>
1: So, So anyway, they were talking about
0: 1946, here are we, Bruce?
1: Uh, Well, we're we're talking 40, 45, 46, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) Uh, Anyway, the Admiralty Engineering Laboratory used to test all the equipment to put on ships, but also we were developing a fire control system as well for, for a cruiser which was quite interesting. Well, in the meantime, I went to night school to try and catch up with some higher qualifications. Uh, first of all, I used to go to Acton Tech for a couple of years. Then I sat the Admiralty Engineering Draftsman's exam and the Inspector's exam. The Inspector's exam was like a manager, intermediate manager service. Well, I qualified of them both, so... They posted me to um, Admiralty in Bath, but of course they call it Defense Force now. There's no longer Admiralty. But these were hutments built by the uh, Americans. So I was a draftsman there for six years, and I got fed up with the bureaucracy. I got fed up with the climate. The uh, the, uh, atomic bomb was just forever over the horizon. The educational system was pretty hopeless. I thought if the kids didn't press... Get qualifying the uh, eleven plus exam, they go to inferior uh exams and whatnot. So uh, a circular came round uh, from the Commonwealth governments, and one of them advertised a job in Devonport as electrical draftsman. Um,
0: this is Devonport, Auckland, New Zealand, at the naval Auckland, base there. Auckland,
1: yeah, yeah. So um, a vacancy there for electrical draftsman. So. Uh, I thought, well, well, why not? Let's let's give it a go. It's a hell of a long way off, but uh, so anyway. After a lot of discussion with my good wife and family, whose lives were going to be totally disrupted, um, so I, um, I I I went up to London for an interview and was accepted on the job. One notable thing at the interview, I said, well, if I'm successful. And you tell us jobs on the North Shore of Auckland. What's the story? Was getting a bit of land or a section, as you call them? Oh, he said, I don't know. It's pretty well built out now. <laughs> Nineteen forty-five when it was about two thousand on the. Yeah, shore. that's
0: right. No such thing as a Harbour Bridge. So, did you live <laughs> no Harbour Bridge by then? Did you live in so, Devonport Village when you first came out here?
1: Uh, no, they, they. Part of the deal was they would provide us a house to rent as long as we needed it. And uh, this was uh, right on Shoal Bay. You know Jutland Road, Marsden Street, the the new, brand new naval housing down there.
0: Vaguely know the area, yes. we had this
1: lovely, uh, eh?
0: I vaguely know the area, yes.
1: Yeah, well, we had this lovely new house with a quarter-acre section, and it went down on... Straight onto Shoal Bay, so we had a nice little boat anchored there. And over the road was Howraki Primary School, a brand new primary school, and a scout down. And of course, we used to go to Takapuna Beach. So I think when we were in Bath, we lived 30 miles away from the sea. So I think my kids thought that all their Christmases had come at once. And all the kids in the street were naval personnel children.
0: Yeah, so Bruce, Bruce, what year was Uh, this? What what year did you come out to New Zealand then with your family?
1: 1955. Right. And we came uh, on the second voyage of the Southern Cross and a six week journey out here around the Cape.
0: So, what year was this, Bruce? 1955, you say. Can you remember when you sailed into Auckland Harbour? Can you remember thinking, "Hmm, I am a long way from home. I might not ever go back to the UK to live." Did you Did you think that you were going to be in New Zealand for <laughs> you, life at that stage? Well,
1: I, I, a correction here: we sailed into Wellington Harbour. Oh, I see. Yes, and it was the worst day they ever had. There was a howling gale. Well, it's always rains in Wellington, but a howling gale, rain slashing down, and my wife had bought some subtropical gear. She thought uh, that New Zealand was subtropical. Well, it is sometimes. (laughs) What what time of the year was
0: it? Can you remember? October. Okay, in the spring. Well, Uh, spring in Wellington, yeah, those equinoxial (laughs) gales.
1: My son had his ninth birthday when we approached Wellington. (laughs) Nice. Uh, And I thought, well, now, what I have to tell you, uh, in this great trip, when we went to South Africa, they showed us some beautiful pictures. Um, we had Land Approach Dinner or something like that. And they showed us a beautiful colored movie of life in Durban and Cape Town. I thought, why the hell we didn't choose South Africa? When we got to Australia, Land Approach Dinner, they showed us a, a very nice colored movie. Not quite as good as South Africa, but uh, then When we got to approach New Zealand, The Land approached. they showed us a black and white movie with uh, bull, uh, bullet carts drawing carts along and corrugated iron roofs, <laughs> <laughs> when we when we looked at each other, uh, absolutely amazed. <laughs> where we going to for God's sake? So yes, let's stay on the ship and go back home. <laughs> but anyway, uh, uh, Navy didn't want to do that, so uh, they put us on the limited. And we went off to Auckland. And when we got to the uh, Hauraki Gulf, of course, we had to go across the dolphin. um, Well, they picked us up by um, by car. Uh, And we went over on the car ferry because the bridge hadn't been built, as you know. But it was sparkling waters. It was beautifully warm. And we thought, oh, my goodness me. And they put uh, put us in the Esplanade Hotel, you know, the Esplanade Hotel.
0: I do. I've had the occasional uh, cold beer on a hot day in that place myself, Bruce. Yes, right down Um, by the waterfront.
1: Well, that doesn't surprise me. (laughs) Anyway, so my family stayed in there for a month while they were finished building this brand-new house we were going to move in, which had its back garden onto Shoal Bay. So, um... Yes, yeah, so just a short walk along the dockyard, and um, I immediately loved the job because it, it, you, you were a design draftsman, but we did all trials and tests and all, uh, anything that was required, we had to do it. So it was only a small, uh, small gathering, and most of the guys were ex-admiralty uh, dockyards, so we were immediately very much at home. So uh, I... I I loved New Zealand straight away. Indeed, Bruce, or I'm just... A or a two-year-old, as we'll call it
0: now. Well, you wouldn't have called it that then, no. <laughs> I'm just trying to do no, some no, calculations. No, no. Uh, you would have been, what, 37, 38 years of age when you arrived in New Zealand with your That's young family right, yep. to take on this job. How long did you stay in that job at the Naval Dockyards?
1: Well, I was addressed in the, um, the set of a planning unit and I was invited to do the electrical planning. I... Didn't do it for too long. By the way, I was then I was completing some technical professional qualifications. I was also doing um, a management uh, training course, um, which pre preceded the degree course. It was a diploma course run by the um, uh, Institute of Management, and so I got a diploma in industrial management, and then I. I did some teaching at Seddon Tech and Westlake after I was qualified, and also part-time. And also, one year, I was brave enough to sit the exam and had to mark 500 papers, but I didn't repeat that again. (laughs) So then uh, I had electrical registration, and I was put in charge of the electrical shop and supply systems for about three years. Then um, the vacancy for leading the planning came. I became the senior planner, and I introduced critical path planning um, with with RCL. We 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 used to go uh, to the Coltex house, which used to run the Herald's, uh printing. They had this uh, whacking great machine in there, you know, like the old old computers they had, thirty-three K memory, I think, or something. Uh, and after twelve o'clock after the paper had been put to bed, we used to go and do our runs there, but the critical path also we would have resources added to it. so we did the first writ of Ota- refit of long refit of Otago. Are you there
0: I am indeed yes i'm I'm fascinated so the, uh, we're fading here at-
1: again well, let me see if I can swap over again uh, are you there?
0: I'm here Bruce yes. <laughs>
1: The, uh, I might have to get a third phone. This, these phones seem pretty hopeless. I don't know. God, I've got another phone. Ah, just as well. we are all, uh, all
0: on the same line, though. That's oh, that's encouraging. Yeah. I'm uh, I'm amused that your landline is obviously not connected to your phone, so you've got those uh, those, uh, those phones that you got handsets, yeah. have they? Well, there were yeah. new
1: phones. Phones are yeah. uh, Panasonic. This is an older phone but uh, let's hope it'll last up a bit then. Yeah. How uh, many okay, How um, many handsets
0: have you got on the phone, Bruce?
1: Uh, three. Okay.
0: <laughs> Maybe we should well, have called you on I, your mobile. I thought I'd call you on
1: reasonable distances, so <laughs> for convenience.
0: Yeah, I, I thought I'd call you on your landline because it would be a lot more reliable than calling you on a mobile. But maybe I was wrong. But however, <laughs> we can we can <laughs> well, carry on.
1: Uh, anyway, we did this refit on time and um, on on, on costs, so that was pretty good. So we repeated it with Taranaki. Um, Anyway, when, when Mr. I I'd built, by the way, I'd, um, in the meantime, I'd, we built, the family built our house at Glenfield because we thought it was time to move. Away. After eight years, the kids who have now gone through intermediate and now are at Westlake. So we bought this section at Glenfield and decided we would build ourselves. So I did the drawings for it and the specs. These days you could do it, but not nowadays. You're going to be qualified as a builder and all the rest of it. Um so we built, the, and I used to have a little standard eight, which had a, an aluminium head. And if you pressed it too hard, it used to blow the gasket. Um, so I used to call in, I took the seats out, and I used to call in the timber yard at the Noirah Road. And I went up every night, I used to collect a load of timber and take it up the hill <laughs> the hill. <laughs> uh, and yeah. well, So uh, we, we built it in a couple of years and moved in there
0: Fantastic Had, uh, had, had the Harbour Bridge been opened by this stage, uh, Bruce? Are, are we no, talking was uh, 50, 1959 well, yet?
1: 59, was it 59 or 61?
0: 59 was when the bridge uh, opened, yes
1: Yeah Well, from our back window we could, in, in um, Marsden Street we could see the bridge building there with a sort of top view from it Anyway... Um, when, when Muldoon brought out the pension, Susan was wanting to build a house. They'd bought a section in Beach Haven. She wanted to build a house, and would I do it? This is your daughter. And uh, I was getting a bit tired of the the the, the, the dockyard was getting a bit changing, and with times, <laughs> I decided when Muldoon brought out his pension, I thought, why not? Why don't, why don't I go and build Susan's house and uh, so um, that's what I did I when I was 61 years old and I thought, getting pretty old for the job, so. <laughs> so,
0: so we're, we're talking uh, the late we, 1970s, you finally uh, left left the dockyards there. Yeah, yeah. This,
1: uh, what, uh, we're into 1980s now, aren't
0: we? Well, you and said so you were born in yeah. 1918, so in yeah, 1979 well, you would have been 60, was, 61, yeah.
1: Yeah, I was 61, yeah. So it was 1980,
0: was it? 80, 81, something like mm-hmm. that. Yeah, indeed. Uh, um, the, the pension had been brought in, the the, the superannuation we know now uh, was brought yeah. in in uh, 1975, and of course, at the time when it began, it was for... Everybody. It was a universal superannuation yeah, for everybody it? over the it age of 60. was
1: 75, was it?
0: It was, yes. That was Muldoon's oh, big uh, election bribe in
1: 1975. Oh, to- I know. I, I'm, well, <laughs> Labour had a much better system, but Muldoon killed it, didn't he? Well, many people
0: but- say that's the greatest act of economic vandalism that this country's ever endured because we had a compulsory savings scheme. Everybody had their own personal accounts. Uh, and it was going to be the saviour of our old age, um, old age uh, super scheme, old well, age pension. it yeah. would
1: be worth billions now if they'd gone well, ahead with if it. If
0: they'd kept it, yes, but Muldoon didn't want it because yeah. uh, <laughs> you might remember those infamous dancing Cossacks ad ads. where Muldoon said, a big."
1: I remember at election day, um, uh, very drunk, <laughs> <laughs> uh, very drunk Muldoon.
0: Yeah, well, that anyway, was, that was some years uh, later. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Uh, So anyway, I, I decided it would be sensible in my declining years to spend time building the house. So next three or four years, we spent... Building this three-story house.
0: <laughs> well, so have you been effectively retired then, Bruce? Since 1980, you, you haven't done any—you haven't worked full-time for what 43 years now.
1: Well, uh, no, but what happened? I—I um, I did various. things. I joined Toastmasters because I felt the need to uh, um, get get some confidence in speaking. I also decided I read this book, Fit for Life, which. I decided I I was getting overweight. Uh, I needed mental stimulus and physical stimulus. So I joined Tai Chi class for a couple of years. Uh, I cut out red meat. To this day, I've never eaten red meat. And I I joined Toastmasters to get some mental stimulus. Well, this, in the meantime, of course, I became chairman of the Glenfield Community Center and I used to walk by Glenfield Hall, and I was dismayed at the state of the uh, war memorial there. It was in a decayed state, uh, long grass barbed wire around it and cans in it and dried grease and the memorial falling apart. And I went to council and I said, how often do you have a service here? You know, And he said, oh, we never have had one. I said, well, you're having one next week, then, because we're going to... <laughs> So, So I called in the troops, and we had a, a service. Uh, we started a, a, an Anzac service. And uh, every year since, 25, 26 years, we've, every year we've had a service with about 500 people there. In the meantime, I got very involved with the Lions Club, Hillcrest Lions, which was a ladies' club. And we... Um, We decided we were going to renovate the hall. They they, they took over the um, piece for the hall, and we started doing it up. And uh, a a guy came up to me one day. He had been um, the executive for the past president of the the hall's leadership. It was uh, local people built the hall together. They pitched in money. And it was a supper room to be added, so we said, "Well, if that was the intention." And the same architect that built it, Mullions, who built the hall, had done this drawing for the uh, for the supper room. So we went to council and said, "Well, Lyons decided they could raise twenty thousand to get the initial work done." And we went to council and said, "Well, look, what about it? This is the this was the original plan. It never got built." I, we believe the money went to the bowling club. So after a lot of hassle, they agreed, and I did the drawings for it and specs, and we went out to tender, and we built the supper room. Well, yeah. And uh, we just, who was going to open it? Well, we said, why don't we get the governor to general to do it? And they said, well, she would never come here. At all. I said, well, let's ask her. So Dame Sylvia Cartwright was invited to come and open it, and she was delighted to come, and come she did.
0: Fantastic! Uh,
1: opened the hall with a great flourish, and um, uh, and it's been a most useful thing. And in the meantime, we got money to modernise the hall and get get it all uh, all the electrics and everything, and put three-phase power in, and. Uh, rewire and re and all the rest of it. So what was going to be a dilapidated, and then we recited the memorial into the. Do you, do you know Glenfield at all?
0: A little bit, yeah. Uh, obviously not as well as yeah, you, it's because the it's the
1: gem of the north. Well, uh, just, I haven't been there.
0: Uh, it's just occurred to me. I've looked at it from the motorway as I've driven north to, you know, the great, well, c- the great you... city of Albany. But
1: uh, Oh, uh, it's a great city. Of, you... They used to say it's a place you drive through forget to Albany from Birkenhead, but now it's a city in its own right.
0: That's right. So it occurs to me you are talking about, uh, you know, building that house there, uh, and, and uh, you moved up there in 1961, and now you're in the retirement village in Glenfield. So you've effectively spent uh, m- way more than half your life in Glenfield.
1: Oh, absolutely. I'm the king of Glenfield. <laughs> so when or the it, prince at least
0: The prince at least yeah. <laughs> When it came time to go to uh, a retirement facility uh, You obviously didn't want to go to Takapuna Or you didn't want to go to Devonport well, no, you, what,
1: what, what happened My wife died She was 96 And we were married for 66 years So that was pretty good uh, She had to go into a care uh, Timana care suite um, And only lasted a few months Because she had cancer And I was left in the house on my own for a year or two, and I didn't like this. I used to go to Susan's regularly on a Sunday, and I used to drive past here. They were building this, uh, the orchards. And I thought, well, it wouldn't be a bad idea to come and live here. It's right in the heart of Glenfield. I don't have to do anything different to what I'm doing now. So um, uh, it's independent living. Mm. So I totally cater cook and wash and all the rest of it. So I'm not dependent on anybody at all. Uh, so having said that, I can live totally independent, have the just outside the door for my car. Uh, if I want to be involved with the village activities, I can. If I don't, I don't have to. Um, we have fish and chips on Friday night at happy hour, and on a Wednesday we often have a meal down there. That's the only meal the rest I do there. Yes,
0: the rest you do Self-ditch. yourself. Yes, I'm, I'm aware of uh, the various arrangements yeah. in the retirement villages. I, I have a, a mother. I was going to say she's elderly, Bruce, but when I talk to you, I suppose she's she's a callow youth. She's only 92. Well, the
1: young, <laughs> the young people will get in the way when you're going around.
0: The, yeah. so, the so, next so.
1: youngest to me is about 92, I think.
0: At uh, well, that's that's my mum's age at, at her retirement village. So Bruce, here's the question. Where,
1: what village. She's
0: uh, she's the one in uh, in Wanaka at the aspiring uh, lifestyle oh, village okay. in Wanaka.
1: Oh, so, well, that's a nice spot to be. Anyway, uh, absolutely. She looks yeah. out
0: her window and looks up at the at the mountains and the snow on top of them at this time of the year. So she has she has a nice well, view. there. I,
1: yeah. I find I, absolutely fine here. You just do your own thing. Come and go. And if the roof falls in, well, tough, they'll fix it. If the grass <laughs> grows outside, they'll cut it. Um, if you want to go away for six months, you know, you're totally secure. Indeed. You get rid of the rubbish and everything's taken care of outside your room but yeah. inside your room. You, so it's an absolutely wonderful arrangement,
0: yeah. So, Bruce, here's the, so, the, the obvious question that everybody surely asks a man of 105 years of age. What is your secret, Bruce? Do you have, have long-life genes in your family where your parents are well-lived or is it just something that, is, that has happened to you?
1: Well, um, I recently uh, the, uh, the student nurses at Auckland University were doing studying old people and, and my, they wanted an aged speaker. So my daughter or ever so obliging, I, I volunteered for me to speak. And they gave me several questions to answer on old age. Anyway, i just throw that in. So, but uh, there, there are several things. There's first of all, being born in the right generation, when you have superb doctors and surgeons who know exactly what to do with your body and your health so if, if you need surgery like I had two new knees done uh, when I was in my 90s uh, that was extraordinary so there's I, I, that, right um, I believe I, I have a very good diet that, uh, I was strongly into exercising for many years I don't exercise as much as I did but I, I do make a point of doing some exercising, walking every day um uh, also, I think, well, I, I think there's three things. You you need health, you need interest, you need to be interested in doing things and living in the present, not living in the bloody past, saying how great it was when I was young. You, you, you only live in today's world, that's all that's important, not the future or the past, so I think that's important. The other thing I think is tremendously important is socializing with people. One of the worst things that can happen to people in villages as well is loneliness. People get in their rooms and you never see them. They just live out an existence in their rooms. Well, that's the worst thing they can do. You've got to be involved with the activities around the place. You've got to socialize. Um, well, we, we want, in the, you've got a shower, you have a shower every day, your hygiene's good, you, you eat the right sort of foods. I don't, I, I, I eat a lot of fruit and vegetable and I'm very fussy about eating the right diet and whatnot and avoiding meat and sugar and salt if I can. Um, I think all those, but I, I think primarily you only live as long as you want to live. And I mean, that, that's the hard, hard fact.
0: That's a very... Uh, I'm very... going to
1: give you a Churchill quote before I lose you. Okay. Uh, uh, and I've got it in my fridge, so I'll sh- I think it's a very important quote. It won the war for us. Right. And i I do know it, but I don't want to say it wrongly. Now, are you listening?
0: I am indeed listening, Bruce, yes.
1: Right. He that will not, when he may, when he will, he shall have nay. He that will not, when he may, when he will, he shall have nay. Well, do you get it?
0: (laughs) I think so. I think so.
1: Well, it means you get on with things when they need to be done. And if you Indeed. don't do it, you might have missed the boat, you know. Yeah. yeah. And I think that was Churchill took every opportunity to do the right things. And that was his favorite quote, apparently. I, I threw that in just for, a, I thought it was a good quote. You should, I should finish on one good quote. Indeed. The other thing I want to say to you, which I think is very powerful to your health, is the ability to choose your thoughts. Now, if you let your thoughts rule you, you have a pretty rotten life. If you, you you organize your own thoughts, you have a good life. And last night I was watching this dreadful pro- prison, I don't know whether you saw it, in Bolton. And it's a, the worst prison in Europe. And there's all these guys there, multiple murderers and sexual deviants and all the rest of it. I thought if they'd been able to control their thoughts, none of them would be there. Because, you know, you start thinking you don't like something, and your thoughts are so geared up. Oh, he doesn't like it. Oh, I'll tell you a bit more how you can hate this guy eventually. Keep hating him, keep hating At some stage you say, no, 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 no. I don't want to know all that rubbish. I'm going to think about something that I like, so bugger off. Your thoughts are not generally friendly to you, I find. So you've got to make your own thoughts good thoughts. So I, I think the ability to control your thoughts is a very powerful factor in the well being of your life. Wow. That's, There's another It's great
0: great philosophical stuff, Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> I understand that you're you're quite the entertainer around the village. Do you get you get called upon to give talks of inspiration to your your well, fellow uh, villagers or other villagers? No, no. They,
1: they, what is it? A prophet is not without honour, where he lives. <laughs> you're not a prophet, and you're not not in your own village. You're not. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> you, tell me, you th- can be invited elsewhere. Yes.
0: <laughs> this might sound yeah. this might sound a ridiculous question to a man who's 105 years of age, but. Do you have do you have ambitions?
1: Oh yeah, to keep breathing <laughs> <laughs> as long as it may take. Yes, I think you live as long as you want to. I mean, people who die, a lot of them want to die. You know, life's not worth it. They're riddled with disease and illness and ill health and God knows what else. You yeah. Know. And
0: you've if, been, you've been uh, lucky I mean, through your life, concern. generally, have you? You, eh? you? You've been lucky through your life. You've never been, apart from the meningitis and the war, you've never been afflicted by anything serious?
1: No, no. Well, apart from surgery on my knees and, uh, uh, well, and, uh, I've had one or two hernias through carting bricks around in the building.
0: Mm. But you've you've avoided uh, the dreaded big C, have you? That's the. uh, I didn't even
1: get COVID, which is strange. Mm. Everybody else around me got COVID, but I didn't. So I just think that's strange.
0: Well, not Um, necessarily. It's diet, it's uh, it's good health, it's exercise, as you say, it's plenty of sleep, it's maybe just keeping a bit to yourself.
1: Well, that's the other thing. I think sleep's tremendously important. I, I get my quarter of sleep. Um, and I think living in the present is very important. If, if you're hankering for the past all the time, mm. then I'd, I'd, I'm not sure I'm keen on, I think you, today is a present to you. You can do something about today. You can change things and alter things. Uh, but if you're living in the past, you can't do it. And. The future is a mystery. You can't do anything about... Well, I suppose you can influence the future by what you do today, I suppose. But not. Um, the, the other thing that people uh, um, like talk about projecting, um, what will it be like in 10 years' time based on what we know today and what it will be like in 10 years' time? Uh, you can't project from today because you don't know what it's going to be like in 5 years time. I mean, we've got this AI coming in. What what life's going to be like in 5 years time and you project from there, I don't know. Well, uh, I well, mean, we
0: could just think back 15 I, years, couldn't we? Think back to well, it's a little bit uh, longer than that. Now um, I think back before we had things like smartphones, the remember life before the iPhone, Bruce?
1: Oh, well, I mean, I remember I remember before the car. <laughs> Oh, pretty well. Well, yeah. we used to run in the street if a car went by. It was all horse-run traffic. Yeah. 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 And if an aeroplane flew overhead, gosh, uh, uh, you know, a two-wing biplane goes goes by. Um, yeah. Uh, no, we'd, that's high tech. All right. Well, here's a very um,
0: che- here's a very cheeky question for you in in 2023, right. Bruce. Has the climate right. changed much over the last 105 years? You reckon?
1: Well, I'd I'd be uh, silly not to say because of fires and floods and all these things, but um, I I don't think climate change has affected me uh, in that uh, here uh, the climate is very temperate, isn't it? Indeed. Um, A bit bit warmer um, than Middlesbrough, is it? Oh, well, no. no. New Zealand is much more temperate than Britain. Britain hits very high temperatures. I mean, we never get up. In London yesterday, was it? The day before it was over 30. It was. Well, when do we get 30 in Auckland, you know? Um, It's much more temperate climate here. Um, uh, London, I mean, you can get very high temperatures and very low temperatures. I mean, when I was growing up, Winters were really winter. We got to get a hell of a lot of snow and frosts and all the rest of it. And I can remember baking in bed when the temperatures were up 85, 90, and uh, terrible temperatures. Yeah. yeah. But for the most part, it was temperate. But you've got extremes in Britain that you don't get here. Yeah. Uh, well, I suppose in Monaco you do. You probably <laughs> get it. To, what happened?
0: Well, What, we, oh, oh, what we had,
1: temperatures you get in, high temperatures you get oh, in it was,
0: it was, we get up to 35, and it was minus, it was Well, mi- there
1: you are, you see. And it
0: was minus four the other morning, so we have our contrast. Well, there, it's so. less
1: temperate in Monica <laughs> than right. it is in Glenfield. Indeed.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think that's been well established.
1: Hey, Bruce, it's been. But I'm very conscious. I'm very conscious of conservation. Uh, I, I feel we're not doing enough to, um. Uh, help the climate change, I think. Um, I am on a committee uh, which is meeting, would have been meeting tomorrow if I wasn't something else on. Uh, We're setting up a committee to look into uh, conservation of energy and water and all the rest of it. Very good. And disposal of rubbish. Um, So there is a degree of consciousness, but not a great degree, well, you know, you see, people still go great distances in planes. You talk to anybody that's planning a, a trip to Britain or planning a trip to Honolulu or something, No, nobody is sacrificing their lives uh, for climate change. Talk to anybody. They're all on the, the move, going somewhere, or driving, and hop in the car tomorrow, no difficulty, and travel a few hundred miles or something, no problem. We, yes. we don't we haven't attempted to do anything about letting the climate change interfere with our lives. we don't just carry on, on exactly as we 've always carried on indeed and i 'm conscious that we, we're really not doing enough to uh, I know that our contribution is pretty small, small in the in the world affairs, but uh, one and one make two i suppose. <laughs>
0: Hey Bruce, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. Gosh, we've been chatting for uh, about an hour or so. I, I really appreciate uh, an hour's worth of your time okay. <laughs> on an afternoon. Ple- a pleasure talking to you,
1: old chap. A pleasure talking. Okay, to you. and our very best
0: wishes. Our very best wishes for the future. That's the that's the least Thank we can say much. to we'll a man who's 105. one hundred and five. Oh, I think that'd be a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> Book me in. Very good. Thank you, Bruce.
1: <laughs> okay. Cheers, and thanks, Peter. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even better, if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you. So get in touch with us now.